So yeah, like it wasn't. I feel like we notice it because we've noticed it a lot more. <laughs> yeah, because we edited a little bit. But it really wasn't that bad. Yeah. Anyways, are you ready for this? Let's do it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of 4.30 in the morning. This is your boy, Ben. And Pat is back as well. What's cracking? You know, cracking is a pretty good rum. Yeah? I don't think I've ever tried it. I tried it once. It was at my uh, cousin's uh, rehearsal dinner for his wedding. I puked. Oh, boy. I'm not going to lie. It was rough. rough, That's rough. It was a fun time all around. Uh, It comes in that bottle with that... uh, it's like it's got like handles on it. Oh, okay. But it's like two handles. It's like the octopus, like yeah. the octopus. I think I've seen those. Yeah. What do they call the octopus? Anten- it's not antenna. It's tentacles. Tentacles. Yes. Yes. It's got like that going on. Sure. So that that's what Kraken is. Nice. As far as I'm concerned. Not not a big rum fan. Rum is the one alcohol that I do stupid shit when I drink. I do like Bacardi. That's rum, isn't it? Yes. I do like Bacardi. See, I prefer the darker stuff. I know Bacardi's yeah. a lighter, it's a lighter yeah. rum. Not a fan of the darker stuff. Although I do like Lady Bly. Lady Bly, Lady Bly is good. Is really good. What's really good is Sailor Jerry. You ever hear of Sailor Jerry? Uh-huh. That stuff. I don't know if there's something in it, but I feel like my drunkest, stupidest moments have happened drinking <laughs> Sailor Jerry. That's there's funny. something about it. I don't know what it is, but yeah. All my drunkest, stupidest moments have been from dark shit, probably. Yeah. Yeah. Whiskey. Although, uh, four wise men, or no, four horsemen took me over the edge on my 21st birthday. That needs to be like the first shot. That can't be. That was like my last. That can't be the last thing you drink. That ended very poorly. That's the worst decision you could possibly make. And I made this decision more times than I can count where you're like really hammered and you're like, well, I'm really drunk. I need to have a really strong drink now. Yeah. Don't do that. Yeah. When you're like getting to that point, you need to stop completely. But if you're going to drink, make it like a, like a light beer, like a bush light or something. Or, yeah. That didn't happen. No, but welcome to, welcome to adulthood, I guess. Well, if you remember the first bar we went to that night, yeah. when we went downtown. I started drinking beer at that bar. Yeah. That it's place when, was packed though. It's when we got to the next bar. I met people at my work there. I didn't even yeah. know that. I didn't even know they're going to be there and they were all buying me shots. And that's what, that's what did it. Yeah. Well, it put me over the edge. That was rough. That was an interesting, an interesting night. It was. Um, anyways. I didn't throw up in the Uber, though. Yeah, that was impressive. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I think the Uber driver's name was Donald. I don't remember that. Or Ronald or something. Nice. He's an interesting guy. Nice. Anyways, uh, episode number 80. 80, yeah. What you got for news, man? I got I got five news stories. Now, I don't know if all five of these are going to make it into the show or not. Sure. But I did bring five. How many did you end up bringing? Do you have a number? I have like two or three. Now... Obviously, we're doing this kind of this every other week thing, so I figured maybe we could go a little bit overboard with the news. Sure. Anyways, my first one comes from our favorites, UPI Odd News. Possible alligator sighting reported in Kentucky Pond. Ah. Park officials in a Kentucky county are warning visitors to be cautious after a man fishing in a pond reported spotting an alligator swimming. The official Facebook page for Mike Miller Park in Benton said visitors to the facility should use caution after a possible alligator sighting in the pond. Brittany Hargrove, director of the Marshall County Parks Department, said the report came from a man who was fishing in the pond at the time. Hargrove said the park officials, the Kentucky Department of Fish and Wildlife, and the Marshall County Sheriff's Office have not yet been able to confirm the sighting. We spent a couple of hours out there, but we're not able to see anything, Hargrove told the Courier Journal newspaper. She said the witness was determined to be a very credible source and that he got a very good look at it. (laughs) Hargrove said the official plan is to continue to monitor the pond. Our initial thought is, if this is in fact an alligator, it may have been a situation where someone had it as a pet and it got bigger than they thought and they decided to release it, Hargrove said. That is our most logical conclusion of how it could have gotten there. So, an alligator in Kentucky. What's, what's funny is possible alligator it, sighting. It's considered a possible alligator sighting. Now, if you look at the range of, for alligators, they can get like up into like North Carolina. Sure. Kentucky isn't that far away, but it's also not that far away from where we live. So, I mean, we're this is maybe the range is expanding a little bit. I think it is. Now, obviously, they can survive in salt water. Now, is it? I thought it was crocs that could do salt water and fresh water. I do not understand the difference between a crocodile. To me, they're the same fucking thing. They're the same thing. I wouldn't, like, like, I feel like I wouldn't be able to tell the difference if I saw one in the wild. I think the crocodile has narrower, has, like, a narrower snout. Yeah, yeah. But, no. Aren't they normally, like, a little lighter as well? They're not as green? Yeah, well. they're They're not as, like, dark. 
alligators can be like blue or like deep blue yeah, or like gray deep, or yeah, yeah, whatever. Yeah. I don't know. I don't fucking know. To me, I want to believe that it's a wild alligator that's kind of crept up there. Sure. Now, wild, sweet. wildlife ranges, they do change over time depending on human activity and depending on conservation efforts and whatnot. But occasionally, it does happen where an alligator or an animal, for that matter, just kind of wanders outside of its range. There was a polar bear that got down to, like, Minnesota once or something like that. <laughs> that just, it was just wandering around. It had something wrong with it. I don't think it was, like, a like a fully functioning bear. It had, like, a mental defect or something. And it just, like, it just, like, started wandering south one day, and it just didn't stop. Unreal. And we see stories like that, too, like these sea lions that are wandering around and shit. Yeah, yeah. Who isn't to say that an alligator yeah. just, just kept going? I wonder how long it took him to get there. I don't know, but have you ever, you, you've been, like, in the backcountry of Kentucky. Yeah. It is, like, a mystical wild land where you don't know what the fuck's going to happen, so. That's true. That is true. I'm not going to rule out the fact that it could be a wild alligator that this guy saw. I just, I just don't think they want to believe it, so they just didn't even mention that. You know, Brittany? Hargrove said it is a credible source that reported this, so hmm. I don't know. And he got a good look at it, <laughs> so that's all I have with that one. I thought that was a pretty fun news story, though. That was good. I if you that. are in Kentucky and you see any alligators out in the wild, please tweet us at thirty in the. In we we want to have you on the show. Yes, please come on the show. Tell us all about it. Anyway, I thought that was a pretty fun one. So that was fantastic. What do you have today, sir? So I'm looking forward to this because I haven't read the whole article. So I'm looking forward to what this is going to be. This has got to be one that I have as well. This is another one from UPI Odd News. Uh-oh. Music teacher plays trombone to scare bear away from school. Okay, I saw this one. I wanted to listen to this, so I didn't read it. A British Columbia music teacher who saw a bear lurking outside the school where he works managed to drive the animal away by playing the trombone. This guy's been waiting for this moment his whole life. <laughs> Tristan Clausen, a music teacher at St. John's Academy in Shawnigan Lake, said he was al- alerted to the presence of a bear sniffing around the wooden structure that houses the trash cans outside of the school. Clausen said another teacher attempted to scare the bear away by banging on a door. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Aren't you supposed to like just get as big as you can and like yell and wave your arms around? Isn't that what you need to do? As far as black bears, that's what they, that's what they say. I don't know about grizzlies though. Grizzlies are a different. This is a animal. grizzly. I don't know if this is a grizzly or okay, not. I was gonna say. I'm just speaking in general. Sure, in general. Sure. Where the fuck was I? I thought, well, I can do better than that, and reached for my <laughs> trombone, and went out. <laughs> Oh, oh that's God. fantastic. A video recorded by a student shows the bear became startled by Clausen's playing and hurriedly leave the area. He had a lot of attention in my direction and was figuring out what to do and decided discretion was the better part of valor. He told Check News. I'm trying not to take it personally. <laughs> that's what a, the end. Of that. that's what, a, the end. <laughs> what a fucking goober. <laughs> I, I, that's that's that's, that's pretty funny. Could you imagine just going on? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. That, that's pretty funny, though. That's hilarious. It worked. I mean, yeah, credit hey. to this guy. Yeah. I got I got one more coming up. I'm not going to rant quite yet, but another high school in California where we had a similar incident go on. Uh-oh. So, All right. But I'm not getting to that one yet. I got this one, though. This one comes from MSN.com, mm-hmm. and this one's a little bit concerning. Okay. Catholic exorcists burning out as they deal with long queues of people claiming they are possessed. Holy shit. Catholic exorcists are claiming that they are burnt out as they are tasked with conducting exorcisms with little help and few exorcists. That's a tough word to say. It is. Exorcists. Exorcists. According to the Times, research undertaken by experts working with the Regina Apostolorium, a Vatican-approved religious university in Rome, found Italian exorcists were overworked and received little support from their bishops as they dealt with long queues of Catholics claiming satanic possession. Priests said they needed support from psychologists to filter out people who were mentally unstable rather than possessed. Seeing 30 to 50 cases every day. It's unbelievable. Could you imagine that? Could you imagine being the 50th exorcism case on a day and the priest is just like, you know, they're usually like, Satan, I command you to leave. And they're doing yeah. all that shit. And yeah. it's just like, Satan, can you please get the fuck out of here? <laughs> <laughs> After a long ass day, you know what I mean? Yeah. Probably goes up to that last house. The power of Christ compels you. Power of Christ. Power, power of Christ compels you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Could you imagine that? It's and like, you paid for this guy to come in here. Exactly. <laughs> That's fantastic. Or it's just like, well, I don't know. So how much do priests get paid to do these exercises? I do not know. I think it's just part of the contract, like. Man, you, the you demand's your, up. I'd start I'd start charging, man. You get your orders, and that's what you got to do. Man. See, if I were a Catholic priest, I would definitely be an exorcist, though. <laughs> I'd be all up in that shit. 
Now, they were also forced to conduct exorcisms on COVID-19 positive people, allegedly possessed by evil. <laughs> the survey found Italy has at least 290 exorcists, with 37 in Spain, 16 in England and Wales, 9 in Ireland, and 3 in Scotland. It's not very many. Italy, why do they have 290? I know that that's the home of the Catholic Church, but... It's really, if you really think about it, it's not that there's many. There's 37 in the entirety of Spain. I wonder how many are in the United States. I don't have numbers for that. Yeah, I'm not sure. I wonder how many. Interest in a course in exorcism has recently soared due to the Pope Francis's belief in exorcism, with 120 participants this year. I guess that's pretty good. Hmm. Spanish priest and professor of theology, Father Pedro Barajon, said the course is helping increase desperately needed exorcists better equipped to deal with the devil. Costa Rica didn't have a single exorcist, and last year they named their first one, he told the outlet. Manila in the Philippines now has a dedicated office and team. It used to be like the Wild West out there. (laughs) But the quality is going up and we're seeing more cooperation with psychologists. Exorcism always arouses interest because of the films about it, but the truth is that these priests need to be trained. I love that quote. It's like the Wild West. (laughs) That's something I say a lot. So I'm just... I wonder how these encounters are going. Like, what are they dealing with? Like, what are these people doing? Is, well, this, is this like Emily Rose every time they go into these houses? <laughs> probably not. I guess the one good thing that we're learning from this article is they're working with actual psychologists to determine. Yeah, that's, yeah, for but sure. could you imagine being a psychologist in this field and you're like, you've dedicated your study, you're like a doctor of psychology to scientific explanation for mental illness. Being like, that's possession, this is a mental disorder. Yeah. Like, where do you draw that line? Yeah. What was that movie? What was that movie? Uh, or not, there's a TV show, a CBS TV show. It was called, it was a Catholic priest and an investigative psychologist and they worked together to determine whether or not, I think it was just called Evil. That's what it was called. It was on Netflix for a while. Hmm. Sounds I interesting. Watched a few, I watched like six episodes. It was pretty good. It's hmm. like the single mom was the, was the, uh, the um the psychologist and i don't know i think she was mostly like she was not she wasn't an atheist but she was like non-practicing any religion or whatever mm-hmm. secular and then the priest was like uh he's like a struggling priest like kind of on again off again type but he was an he was an exorcist or that's what he, at least he was studying so they would go around and they'd investigate cases of supposed de- demonic possession and they'd debunk some but some they couldn't that's cool. I'll, was a, a, I'll check that out. It was, it was a, it wasn't a real show. It was a, just a TV show, but right. it was pretty cool. I think it was just called Evil. That's sweet. That's kind of what that reminded me of. I just, I couldn't imagine being a exorcist, like a real ass one, because you got to deal with all the bullshit. You probably got to deal with nine, nine times out of 10, you go to a case and it's just nonsense. Yeah. But you got to be equipped for some like dark voodoo magic shit. You got to be ready to fight that. And like, they're doing 50 a day. They got to like, they got to turn these over quick, man. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing that kills me. Now, I don't know if that's 50 exorcists or 50 cases that they investigate. Yeah, that's true. It could just be cases that they investigate, but I want to see some percentages. I want to see... But, like, it's got to take some time to, like, to evaluate these people. You would think so. How long would it take to evaluate each person? At least, you got to spend at least 20 minutes with somebody. 20 minutes, 30 a day, I don't think there's enough hours for There's that. no way. Ah, there's no way. You're going to be working 15, no, 10-hour days at least. You're, you're, you're going to need to get, like, you're going to have to be there, like, five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I thought that was funny, though. Real quick, according to The Atlantic, this this was in 2018. Apparently, it was around 100 in the United States. Oh, shit. That's so, pretty good. Yeah, it ain't bad. Thank you for that update. No problem. Another one from UPI on News. Uh-oh. California court classifies bees as fish under endangered species law. This was the sixth news story I planned on bringing, but I decided <laughs> I had too many. So this is a good one. I'm happy you brought this. Ruling by a California appeals court had the unusual effect of classifying bees as fish under the, late, uh, under the state's endangered species law. The case began in 2019 when the California Fish and Game Commission classified bumblebees as endangered and agricultural groups successfully appealed to the Sacramento County Superior Court the following year to have the insects removed. The groups had argued that the bees could not be listed as endangered under the umbrella of invertebrates because California's endangered species law from the 1970s explicitly defines invertebrates, animals without backbones, as fish. Third District California Court of Appeals <laughs> in Sacramento has now overturned the earlier decision, returning bees to the state of endangered list. The court ruled that other non-aquatic invertebrates, such as snails, were already listed as endangered under the category of fish. 
According to terrestrial invertebrate, like each of the four bumblebee species may be listed as an endangered or threatened species under the act. Associate Justice Ronald Roby wrote the decision. I guess unlike a lot of things that go on in California, <laughs> at least there is established precedent for this one. Sure. <laughs> Could These you imagine people are clearly the experts. Being like the Supreme Court justice in California and you gotta write a decision. <laughs> Bees may legally be considered fish. Unbelievable. Because of reasons. I don't. I'm not surprised. Now, bees are good. Bees are good for the environment, but. Yes, definitely. I mean, we already saw, we've already covered hippos becoming humans, which I have more problem with than this. This I don't, I'm not as concerned about, but it is ridiculous. Pretty soon, we're not going to be able to assume the identity of the species of these animals. Everything is going to be an opinion. We're at that point where everything is just an opinion. It's just, what do you feel today? Now, the real question is, do these bees identify as fish? Because exactly. They, we're, I don't we're, feel like they've been consulted in this discussion. Like we're like they don't have a place at the table. Like there's no way. Like at this point, we can't assume that they think that they are fish. I don't think they consider this. See, that's arrogant of this justice to make that determination. Exactly. Anyways, I think I, we should I go protest. We should go protest. <laughs> yes, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, if you have an opinion as to whether bees deserve to be considered fish or if they deserve to determine their own identities. Please tweet us at 30 and then tell us all about it. Or comment on our Facebook page. Yes, please comment on Facebook as well. I haven't checked out any of the social media lately. <laughs> we really got to figure that shit out. We will. At this we'll point, figure it out. we got we to hire somebody. We got to find someone. <laughs> if you want to make $5 a week <laughs> and gain valuable media experience, tweet us at 30 and then give us your resume. Please. Anyways, I'm only going to do... I'm only going to do probably one more. Okay. I was going to do the one where the, the mountain lion wandered into the high school in California. Oh, wow. But that was a UPI odd news headline. The issue with that story is they contained it pretty quickly. <laughs> <laughs> the janitor just locked it in an empty classroom and they just took care of it. They didn't Finally, have to shut down the school or anything. Finally, one smart guy. Unlike the bobcat scenario where the bobcat that was really a house cat that we talked about. You remember that? Yeah. Shut down the entire school yeah. and everybody home <laughs> ended up being a house cat. Yeah. So that one, I don't think we need to cover that one, although it was a pretty funny headline. This one comes from news24.com, though. Okay. Woman in love with aeroplane. It's A-E-R-O. That's why I said aeroplane. Okay. I don't know why they wrote it like that, yeah. but they did. Woman in love with aeroplane says she couldn't feel romantic emotions for human partners. A woman has revealed that she has been in a relationship with a passenger plane. Sarah Roto, 23, identifies as an objectum sexual, meaning she is sexually attracted to inanimate objects and says that she feels an overwhelming love towards a, the passenger plane that she refers to as her boyfriend. Although Sarah, who is from Dortmund, Germany, has given relationships with humans ago, she claims that the aircraft makes her feel complete, and she even has 50 replica models that she sleeps with in her bed, and which she gets physical with, as well as regularly traveling by aeroplane so she can remain close to her partner. Sarah loves to spend her free time plane spotting and has two tattoos of her boo on her arm. While it is Sarah's dream to marry the Boeing 737, who she calls Dickie, she says that the ceremony would not be deemed legal in her country. Are you right over there, buddy? Uh, okay. Now, we cannot assume the identity of this airplane, the gender identity of this airplane. You're right about that. She said boyfriend. Yeah. It's not correct. Now, I, I had to cut a lot out of this because it, it got <laughs> kind of graphic and I was surprised reading some of this shit. Lord almighty. So I'm not going to cover any of that. But um, when Sarah first laid eyes on Dickie, she instantly fell in love and now takes regular flights around Europe to see as much of the plane as possible. She adds, I fell in love with him immediately and I just want to be with him all the time. He makes me the happiest person. I also fly very often so that I can simply feel and hear him. When Sarah is not <laughs> flying, she tries to go plane spotting. She also carries a small model aircraft with her. Some people don't understand my love, but my friends took my coming out very well and encouraged me. I would love to marry him more than anything, but it's forbidden in Germany. Now, if she lived in California, I think she would have no problem getting a marriage license at this point. I wonder if this was ever tried previously in Germany, since it's forbidden. I wonder if it was ever. That's a good question. That's a good question. <laughs> If you know anything about German marriage laws, please tweet us at 30 in the and let us know. Yeah. I mean, I guess there are worse things you could do. Yeah. What I can't figure out is this woman has all, she's got to have a ton of money. Yeah. To be making all these flights. She's 23 years old. Yeah. She's been flying all the time, just not to go anywhere, just to be with her, with her, with her soulmate. Flights aren't cheap right now. Now, could you imagine being on a plane with her, like sitting next to her and she's just like, like <laughs> caressing the plane and like, like. Fondling the seats and shit. Like, what do the workers say? Like, they got to see this woman often. A lot. I don't know. 
Could you imagine if she's like... I don't know where to begin with this, honestly. Could, could you imagine if you're working on the plane and it's like, she's like, gets right back. She gets off and she gets like right back on. I want to like find a like like an interview with this woman. You probably could. Or like something because this might be for attention. This is absolutely ridiculous. It, it is. It's a little, a little too <laughs> this much. This is ridiculous. A little too much. And what was ridiculous too is I had to cut a lot of that article out for being way too graphic for our family i'm sure all podcast. that's real i'm sure it was a little bit too much yeah. but anyways that's all i'm gonna do for news i had one more but it really isn't that good so do you have any more news yeah but i'm gonna try and make it as quick as possible sure this is from june 3rd archaeological bonanza ancient city emerges from the tigris river drought reveals 3400 year old urban center of the Mitanni empire a team of german and kurdish archaeologists have uncovered a 3,400-year-old Mitanni Empire-era city which located on the Tigris River. The settlement emerged from waters of the Mosul Reservoir earlier this year as water levels fell rapidly due to extreme drought in Iraq. The extensive city with a palace and several large buildings could be ancient Zakiku, believed to have been an important center in the Mitanni Empire. You know what, that's as far as I'm going to take it because the rest of it just goes into a bunch of extensive history. Sure. But it's pretty cool. Like, they found basically, like, an entire fucking city. <laughs> so this was at the Tyrus River? Yes. Which is one of the two rivers that span through Mesopotamia, ancient Mesopotamia. Yep. Uh, did they say what modern-day country this was? This one was in? It's got to be, like, Iraq or Iraq. Syria. Yep. Yeah. Iraq is one of the countries in the world's most affected by climate change. South of the country in particular has been suffering from extreme drought for months. Different crops from dying out. Large amounts of water have been drowned from the Mosul Reservoir. Iraq's most important water sto- storage since December. This led to the appearance of the Bronze Age, Bronze Age City that had been submerged decades ago without prior archaeological investigation. That's pretty cool, though. That is really cool. There is so much out there, and that's just another example of... Kurdistan region of Iraq. Okay, yeah. That, that's really cool. That's a great news story. Yeah. I'm going to have to dig more into that. Yeah, definitely. There's so much out there to discover. And it's, it's always cool to see that type of work getting done. It just adds more understanding to what was going on way back when. Now, that was like, they said that was like 3,500 years ago or something. 3,400, yep. That's ridiculous. That's like... That's from SciTech. S-C-I-T-E-C-H. SciTech Daily. Okay, cool. Yep. Anyways, I think we did enough news today. I don't know yep. what you say. Yep, I think we're good with that. Are you ready for the main topic? Yeah, I'm ready for the main topic. Pat, no. what is our main topic? This is 100% your episode. This is going to be a Ben episode. Uh, don't let him <laughs> fool you. Today we're going to be talking about, and it's going to be kind of a part two. I don't know if it's definitely a part two, but it's definitely kind of a part two. Yeah. And this is going to be heroic war stories. Now, if you guys remember back to episode number 38, we talked about crazy war stories, or just war stories in general, basically. Yeah. This is going to kind of sort of be part two, but it's going to be more of the heroic side. Mm-hmm. I played fast and loose with the term heroic. I'm not going lie so did i and i played fast and loose with stories a lot of these are like people but just what they did sure in certain situations that's basically what well i got yeah i got a person a battle and and another thing i'm going to talk about so nice i got four but if you guys if you find this episode interesting episode 38 Yep. I thought that was a really good one. I re-listened to that one before just to kind of get hear what we were talking about back then. That was a really fun episode. It was. That so, was a good episode. Ben, since this is your episode, you want to kick us off this week? Sure. My first one, I want to do this one real quick. Sure. Desmond Doss. You okay. know who Desmond Doss is? Yeah. He fought on... Uh, Hacksaw Ridge. Heckman Mountain. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, well, a lot of people have heard of this name before because his story comes from um, was made into a film called Hacksaw Ridge. And it's, one of, it's one of my favorite movies. Andrew Garfield. Yep, it's directed by Mel Gibson. It's got Elrond in it. Lord Elrond, uh, yep. Vince, Vince Vaughn. Vaughn. Yep, so a lot of big names. Um, obviously, Desmond Doss. You, I, can't, I don't even know where to begin with, with this story. This guy did some of the most incredible shit to where he did so much shit, a lot of the the writers didn't want to put a lot of some of it into the movie because they didn't think people would believe that he did those things. Sure. And those are the kind of the things that I wanted to bring up because Doss is credited with saving 75 men. He was a conscientious conscientious objector, meaning he did not believe in carrying a gun. Sure. And he joined to become a medic. Yep. This guy saved, like, 75 men. Officers claim that he saved over 100. He claims 50, but he was just being humble. So they landed on 75 people that he saved. Now, real quick, I don't know if we said this was World War Two. Yes, Pacific World War II. Theater. Pacific Theater, yep. So this would have been, was Hacksaw Ridge part of the Battle of Okinawa, or was that something different? I feel like it was Iwo Jima. Iwo Jima, one of the two. 
One I get, of the two. I get, the, I get it, that. It might be Okinawa. Me, me too. I get that mixed up. Sure. But this was Pacific. This would have been J- islands off of Japan or yep. something like that, where yep. this where this type of thing was going on. World War II, though. Yes, thank you. Got ahead of myself. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry. No, you're good. So this guy would run back into enemy. And for anyone that doesn't know, Hacksaw Ridge is basically like this big giant cliff. It's hundreds of feet tall. Sure. And um, he would run into en- enemy fire with no weapon, and he would save wounded soldiers, bringing them back. And he would put them in this like makeshift litter with a rope, and he would rope these wounded men down the cliff to save their lives. Sure. And it was absolutely unbelievable what he did. And I guess the thing with Hacksaw Ridge, and it really wasn't, soldiers said that it wasn't really called Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah, right. But it was like an elevated plateau position where you could do, if you held it and the Japanese held it, you could do an awful lot with it, especially if you had anti-aircraft yep, up there. Definitely. And it was the kind of situation where it was critical to do something to knock them off of the ridge, basically. Because it's important to have the high ground, it's, as yeah. Obi-Wan Kenobi teaches us. Yes, as Obi-Wan Kenobi teaches us, and as as most war people back then would teach us, you want the high ground. And a position like this, if you held it, you can control an awful lot of territory over an awful lot of space, especially if you have decent artillery up there, and you're able to defend it. So the issue with this particular battle that was going on for a while was they really couldn't get the the only way they could really attack it was just overwhelm them with infantry. Yeah. Which if you're an infantry soldier thrown into this battle, your chances of coming you're out, you're walking into a buzzsaw. Yeah. Basically like they hot hacksaw. It's mm-hmm. high casualties. You're walking in hoping sending in a hundred men hoping that ten survive type of a thing. Yep. So that's the type of battle this is and it was just like we're sending everybody we have up there, we'll see what happens basically. Unreal. Not expecting much. Do you so, imagine? It's ridiculous. But you know, sometimes you gotta that that's part of war is you have to make those rough sacrifices. So anyways. So aside from doing everything that he did, um, Here's some extra shit that he did. A lot of people don't know that he was actually wounded by a grenade, and he waited like five hours for his own aid. After okay. after he saved, he, he they they went up a couple times, but um yeah, which is crazy. And yep. while he was wounded, he's still saving people. By the way, when it was his time to get rescued, like when he was like the last guy who's getting ready to get rescued, sure, he saw one more dude that needed to get rescued, and he gave up his litter. This guy was like on the brink of death, and he gave up his rope to get to safety, and he gave this guy. I mean, it's unbelievable. Yeah, it is a compelling story in the movie does it does it's not one you, you can watch that one once and you're never gonna forget it right and he was also hit by a sniper in the arm and he still crawled 300 yards away yeah to get to safety and he still went back and saved more people despite all this shit now after the pacific theater um with all his injuries and everything he ended up being damn near like 100 percent disabled and he had to go through like five years of like therapy and shit like that. He also contracted tuberculosis as well while he was Which, over fighting on the islands. Why wouldn't you? Right. Despite all this, in 1966, he rescued another nine people from a cave in Georgia. They were like Boy <laughs> Scouts, and they were like they were like six kids and like three adults, and they got stuck in this cave. And this dude saved these people with like a coworker. Could you imagine? Unbelievable. But yeah, that's Desmond Doss. I mean, I didn't even scratch the surface with him. You guys should should definitely check out the movie, Hacksaw Ridge. I didn't watch it for a long time because I didn't like the idea of watching a movie about a conscientious objector. But that guy had bigger balls than anybody else on that battlefield. 100%. That was a ridiculous story. And really what drove him was his faith. Yeah. At the end of it all. It was, it was his faith that gave him the ability to do all Now, this. he was a Pentecostal, wasn't he? Yes. Which is an extreme, liter- extremely literal translation of the Bible. But he was a good, great, he's an American hero if there's ever been one. Did he get the Medal of Honor? Yes. I believe he should deserve it. Now, is that all you have with Desmond Doss? Yep, you can you can, you can start. Great guy. Please look him up. He's just an, it's an, it's Pretty an incredible, incredible, incredible human being. One of the, you, you, you couldn't create a, a much better person than that guy. So. Nope. Definitely. He deserves, I'm happy we're talking about him. Definitely. Now, I've got another Amer- <laughs> very similar American hero, except this is going to be World War One. Sure. And this is also going to be a guy that originally was a conscientious objector, just like Desmond Doss was. Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to be Alvin York. Have you ever heard of Alvin York? Mm-mm. I'm surprised you don't have him prepared. I was kind of thinking mm-hmm. that this was going to be one you're going to bring to the table. Sure. I didn't learn about Alvin York until high school, and we were learning about World War One, and my teacher was like, well, there really only is one war hero from World War One, and it's Alvin York. Hmm. He was like the poster child of World War One. 
Now, like Desmond Doss, Alvin York originally enlisted as a conscientious objector, despite the fact that he was kind of a rough and ready type guy. Like he he would he would brawl with people at bars. He would drink a little bit. He was kind of rough and ready. Mm, sure. Uh, he was a little bit older though. He enlisted at age 29 in World War One. This was back when the draft was age 20 to 30. Mm. You were eligible for the draft. So during World War One, he got drafted and he. Applied for conscientious objectorship twice, and he got denied both times. Mm. Eventually, he just kind of said, fuck it. I'm just going to go fight. I guess somebody gave him a Bible verse that compelled him to become a warrior, basically. And he's like, <laughs> you know, I may as well embrace it. So uh, he was from Cumberland Hill, Tennessee. He ended up enlisting in the Army during World War One, however, and ended up in the 82nd Infantry Division. Now, World War One was more condensed, so basically most of the fighting was going on like in France. I think France was probably the, the bulk of the battlefield. Uh, Switzerland, I don't know. Switzerland's always been neutral. I don't know if they were fighting in there, but like like Belgium, mm-hmm. the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Hungary, all that shit. That was kind of where most of the fronts were going on. So I don't know World War One that well. I don't know what that was going on. All I know is that there was basically a front. Well, it all that, started in Austria. Yeah. Austria, Hungary. Well, I know how it started, but yeah, the Soviet or not even the Soviet, the Russian front. The Soviet Union took over in the tail end of World War One. So Germany was basically fighting a two front war. So this guy would have been on the French side of Germany and basically what was happening was it was, it was all trench warfare so it was just kind of like you would slowly move through these trenches you'd run over the top you try to take another trench type of a thing mm-hmm. with the 82nd infantry division Alvin York was on a patrol of, with 17 men and they had orders to take out some German machine gun nests now the way these machine guns were stationed you really didn't know how deep the territory was beyond that. Like, he had some idea, but you really didn't know. Mm-hmm. Walking into an area that was in- reinforced with machine gun nests, you really didn't know what the fuck was going on. So they went to go take one, but they kind of tried to, like, swing around. So they kind of, like, cut it off and, like, take it by surprise, basically. And they ended up cutting that one off, and they were able to take a bunch of Germans prisoner, and they were able to take the nest. But there was another nest that they didn't know about that opened fire up on them and killed, like, half the... The mm-hmm. Americans that were down there, I think, like, nine of them got hit. Six of them died. Damn. So it's like, well, they got all these German troops, but they don't have a lot of people left. And it's like, we're kind of stuck between a rock and a hard place because we're basically behind enemy lines at this point. They know exactly where they're at, where we're at. This other nest does. It's only a matter of time before they're going to overwhelm us. We got, like, eight guys left, and we got a bunch of prisoners that the second we get killed, they're just going to take <laughs> up our guns and start fighting again. So right. it was not really a good scenario. So Alvin York was looking around, and he was a corporal at the time, and nine of these guys were casualties. All of a sudden, he was the ranking officer with this little group. And he was like, well, shit, you know what? We gotta figure out something. You guys hold the fort down. I'm gonna go see what I can do, basically. So he kind of wanted... <laughs> kind of wanders out there and he's like dodging machine gun fire and all this shit at the time and he kind of like lodges himself up and most of this that we learn about is from his personal diaries as to what was going on mm-hmm. but other soldiers were able to verify like what happened sweet and it's like he's and i don't know the exact details but he's kind of like wandering around for a while like dodging enemy fire trying to get a good position on this nest and it gets to the point where he gets kind of like pulled back and he doesn't have a lot of ammo left in his rifle but he has his pistol and Six German troops come up with bayonets. And this is in the midst of a bigger battle, so there's, like, fire going on. So he's banked up. Six German troops with bayonets are coming at him. He starts picking them off one by one, starting with the back <laughs> and working his way front. And he takes down all six of them. Unreal. Now, we don't know. That's kind of badass. We don't know how true that story is, but his journal makes it kind of sound true. Mm-hmm. So then he ends up moving in, and he ends up taking the entire machine gun nest by himself, basically. And he ended up capturing, like, and he had some guys, like, coming in with him, like, as he started, like, making up ground or whatever. He ended up killing, like, 25 Germans in this entire, on this one day. Unreal. And he captured, like, 150 of them. <laughs> And he ended up just, like, moving the entire front of the battle, basically. He took out, like, six, like, he completely shut down all these machine gun nests. I don't know how many. I think he took out, like, six nests or something total. But Unreal. It's just, like, it was all him just do, moving on his own, basically, doing the most that he could. Ended up working out really well. Now, he was a really good shot because he had a lot of practice back in the backcountry of Tennessee shooting. I'm sure. So he was an excellent shot. And that ended up helping him. And he was like, you know, the way that these Germans were popping up, it's like the target practice I used to do back home, except the targets were bigger but it was at the same distance. <laughs> so he was bullseyeing these guys. Damn. And he ended up, he was like the war hero of war heroes in World War One. Ended up living into the 60s, and he would tell Stella stories. He lived in the glory that's ever awesome. since then. But um, that's Alvin York. He's, he's an American badass. hero. He's a badass. He ended up getting the Medal of Honor. He got a lot of promotions after he pulled that one off. He ended up becoming a sergeant, and that's what he was known as, was Sergeant York from there nice. after. Badass. And uh, Gary Cooper played as him in a 1940s movie, I think, mm. where basically reenacted the battle and everything. So Nice. 
Alvin York definitely deserves to be talked about. He's an American hero. Um, yeah, that's pretty much all I got with him. It was a pretty pretty good story. I don't know if I got all the details exactly right, but he killed a lot of guys. He was a pretty badass. That is pretty badass. He, he, took, he took a lot on on his own when he was pressing a duty. So, anyways, what that else was a good got, one. What else I like that was a really good one. We're going over to the British Army with this one. Oh, this guy served in over four wars spanning over six decades. Four wars, six decades. This guy served from 1899 to 1947. Wow. Yeah, pretty incredible. This is Adrian Carton D. Wyart. You ever heard of this guy? Can't say that I have. Now, this guy is known for being the unkillable soldier. Okay. This guy is clearly a, a hero. He served his country for the majority of his life, basically. Sure. Uh, this guy was a British Army officer. This dude suffered 11 horrible injuries. This guy was shot in the face. He lost an eye. He was also shot through the skull, hip, <sighs> leg, ankle, and ear. That's in a w- lot of headshots. It is unbelievable. My God. In World War One, he was severely injured on eight occasions and mentioned in six <sighs> dispatches. Eight major eight. injuries? Yes. Okay. In World War One alone. He survived multiple plane crashes. <laughs> <laughs> It, 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 like didn't I can we, I can I can only imagine. Didn't we talk about this guy before? I don't know. We I might have we've talked about this. We guy might before. have talked about this guy before. But um, he also lost a hand in one of these <laughs> battles as well. Like he just keeps going back. This is, this is like the Terminator, but World <laughs> War One, <laughs> and he just keeps going back. Oh my god! And he just could not be killed. This guy could not be killed. He ended up dying in his home in 1963 at age 83. Holy shit! And I mean, it's basically all I have on this guy. Like, what did he look like? He looked like, yeah. like a jelly person. Like, I don't, dude. I don't even know. He got bro. no hand. He's probably got no ear. Like, hit in the head. I just can't believe he lived till 83. That's ridiculous. Like, how much metal was in this guy's? body i don't know getting shot that many times yeah, it's probably a lead metal too yeah unreal that's ridiculous that's one of the dumbest things i've heard but the craziest <laughs> things i've heard at the same time what was that guy's name again adrian carton d wyart i feel like we would have i think i feel like i would remember that name i feel like i would too but we did talk about a guy that survived multiple plane crashes i can't remember who it was though <laughs> anyways that was a great it's story unreal. so he's a british a british guy yep could you imagine being <laughs> Being like like the like the drill officer getting the troops ready and it's like oh fuck here comes this guy, this guy again, again. <laughs> like like when I read the multiple plane crashes I feel like I feel like he would I feel like these plane crashes were him getting rescued from being injured and then the plane getting shot down or probably <laughs> I don't know that's unreal that's like he's like the the Roy Cleveland Sullivan of yeah, war basically. Yeah, yeah, yep. Do you have anything more with that guy? No, go ahead. I've got, I've got one. This one's dumber than shit. Um, have you ever heard of Wojtek the Bear? Uh-uh. This is the bear that joined the Polish army in World War Two. You know, don't they? Do they have a statue of this bear? They have a statue of him all over the place. I think I've heard of this. Yes. So basically, what ended up happening, and the history behind this, is when the Soviets moved into Poland, they took a bunch of the Polish people, including a ton of Polish soldiers, and exiled them to Siberia. They were just like, okay, they wanted them basically to set out the war. Essentially, they didn't want Polish soldiers in Poland fucking up the Russian advance into whatever. Sure. That quickly changed once Germany violated the non-aggression pact, and they were like, well, we got all these Polish guys kind of sitting out the war. We may as well put them to work, basically, give them something to do. <laughs> So they were able to arm them up, get them, get them ready to go, and they were like, well, we're going to use you guys, but we're going to have you start out in the Middle East. So they started them off in Iran. And then it's like Polish battalion just kind of doing some shit. And it was, this was still the Allies. I mean, the Russians or the Soviets were the Allies back then. And the Polish obviously were heavily invested in knocking out Germany at least. Sure. So they were like, fuck yeah, we'll fight. We'll do something. We don't care. So they ended up in Iran for a while. And they were just kind of like wandering around through the Middle East for quite a while. And then they ended up in the Italian campaign. But in Iran, they met this little shepherd boy at a train station. And they had a bunch of civilians that were kind of like like fouling the, the soldiers, basically. A bunch of the Polish civilians were just like, well, we're not going to leave. We're not going to let the soldiers leave without us. So they just kind of were traveling. Mm-hmm. It was like like a support group or whatever, a fan club, basically. Sure. And eventually, the fan club, more so than the soldiers, they found this little Iranian shepherd boy that had a bear that he was keeping, it like a bear cub. And he ended up selling it to one of the civilians. One of the girls was like, hey, I want this bear. She ended up buying it. And so it was like, fuck it, we'll, we'll keep him. But then it got to the point where it started to grow pretty quickly. Yeah, no shit. And it's like, well, the girl couldn't keep the bear anymore because it's 200 pounds, but the, it was like a well-behaved bear. And the soldiers started to like it. They were like, they were having a lot of fun with it, and it would like mimic the soldiers, and it would march with them, and it would 
Like <laughs> it would, they taught it how to salute and all this Unreal. shit. Unreal. And it would play wrestle with them, and it was like, well, you know, we're having a lot of fun with this bear. So they're kind of storming through the Middle East doing some shit. But then it got to the point where it was like the mascot of the of the group. But it got to the point where they were trying to get sponsorship by somebody else to pay for them to go fight in Italy or something. And it's like, well, they weren't going to pay for a mascot. There was a rule against no mascots. So like, well, we could just regularly enlist them as a private. <laughs> So they enlisted him. They gave him his own serial number, his own paycheck, everything. He had everything. He had all the credentials of a soldier. And they assigned him to the 22nd Artillery Supply Company. And Wojtek became basically an ammo carrier, essentially. But he could carry the weight of four yeah, men I'm sure. <laughs> on his back. And he was he became pretty big. And that's basically what he did. It's he unreal. would carry ammo, but he would get along with the soldiers really well. He would sleep with them if it was a cold night. He would, like, keep them warm and shit. Aww. He would... That's why we won. Yeah. Well, he would uh, he would smoke cigarettes, and he would also eat cigarettes. Nice. He liked eating fruit, marmalade, honey, and syrup. And if he did really good, they'd reward him with beer, and he loved drinking beer. I'm sure. Um, and he was, like, literally, like, part of the crew. And he fought in Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and Iraq. He was part of that before they went into Italy. Wow. Now, it got to the point where he saw some action and combat, and he ended up becoming a corporal. He got promoted. <laughs> Could you imagine me a private and having those bear like getting paid and like having you got you got to report to the bear. And what was funny is he became like he was an attraction as much as anything else going on in World War Two. Yeah. So he became very famous very quickly, and everybody wanted to go see him work and do all this shit. And he would he would still salute and he would march and he would do all this stuff. And it was he was just like really well trained, but he got along with the people super well, even though he's a fully grown fucking that's so Syrian awesome brown bear. And what ended up happening was uh, you know what that is not to cut you off sure this is a case of reincarnation it could be this is a soldier that died and wanted to fight again it could be but um what kills me about this is after they enlisted him it's like he was in these battles and he's like got these like war credentials even though he's a fucking Wojtek the bear he's a fucking bear and people are like they were hearing so many stories and they thought that the polish people were making it up now there were british soldiers that were fighting alongside the polish during some of these campaigns and multiple british soldiers were like well you know we heard the stories and then we actually saw him out there and the stories were pretty spot on. Like we didn't really interact with the bear, but he was out there. He was carrying ammo. He was saluting. He was doing all this shit, and he seemed to be right in the mix. And uh, after the war, he ended up moving to Scotland, and he ended up living in a zoo in Scotland. Uh-huh. He, lived to, he lived to see 21 years, which is pretty good for a bear. No shit. And he ended up growing to 1,100 pounds. Damn. And there are statues of Wojtek all across the world, basically. Awesome. Celebrating the Polish bear, the Syrian bear that ended up joining the Polish army and did pretty good. That's amazing. So if you want to hear a heroic war story. Wojtek is his name? Wojtek. It's, it's going to be spelled W-O-J-T-E-K, but I believe it's pronounced Wojtek. Got you. Now, Tim would be the expert on that. Right. Tim is our resident Polish expert. He's trying to teach himself how to speak Polish. Nice. He's using that Duolingo thing. Mm. He's doing pretty well with it. Like, he's able to, like, say some shit. It's pretty awesome. So, anyways, that's all I got with that one. My next one, Tim actually inspired me to pick this guy. I think Tim will be, I I think Tim will appreciate this next one. Awesome. You ever heard of Mad Jack Churchill? Can't say that I have. This guy is a complete badass. We're going back to the British Army. This is Mad Jack Churchill? Yes, his full name is John Malcolm Thorpe Fleming Churchill. Okay. Which is such a badass name. Yeah. This dude was not a conscientious objector, but he did not carry a rifle. This dude wielded a Scottish broadsword and sometimes a longbow. This is something Tim would do. Yep. This dude would also play bagpipes while charging into battle. And this guy would literally, like, pump up. Like, he was kind of like an independent. Like, this dude did whatever the fuck he wanted to do. Sure. He did not wear the correct uniforms. He wore, like, makeshift uniforms. He did whatever the fuck he wanted to do. This guy's like the antithesis of Con- uh, Gregor McGregor. Literally. And he would march into battle. He would he would pump up his guys with his bagpipes. Sure. And, but this guy did some pretty incredible shit. So he was awarded a military cross for his heroic actions during the Battle of Iepinet. Did I say that correctly? Can you spell it? I apostrophe E-P-I-N-E-T-T-E. I don't know what the hell that is. <laughs> Me either. Maybe the, it might be the Battle of One. One Ipinet. Yeah, maybe. This sometimes is World War it, II, by the way, I'm pretty sure. Sometimes they do it where they have like Roman numerals before the uh, battle. That, if they have two battles in the same place, mm-hmm. sometimes they'll do it where they'll have a Roman numeral ahead of it. Oh, okay. where, was this, where was this battle fought? Near Bethune. Anyways. Yeah, so in this battle, he killed the first approaching Nazi soldier with a longbow. And used <laughs> then, he, then he used two machines 
machine guns to fight back until they ran out of ammunition. Did you imagine you're fighting along this dude and this dude whips out a bow and he's taking like like what and was this Legolas? Could you imagine being the Nazi soldier? Yeah, that's been you get sh- all this shit and you, you go down you, by some <laughs> asshole with a longbow. <laughs> I'd be like, are you shitting me? I'd be so <laughs> I pissed. I imagine. Anyways. And he managed to get the remainder of his company to safety by leading them right through the enemy lines at night, despite being shot in the, sh- in the shoulder. Now, he also led troops through Sicily and Salerno landings using just his clay bag, which is a double, was like a double-ended longsword, basically. Sure. A broadsword. And he was also, and he also, he was also able to capture 42 German troops with just that clay bag and a mortar crew. Like, this dude is just a total badass. <laughs> I could not imagine watching this guy operate. That's basically all I have on this dude, but... What was his name again? Mad Jack Churchill? Mad Jack Churchill. That was good. I need, this dude is a badass. I need to look more up with that guy. That was pretty fucking hilarious. Yeah. This guy's fan... He looks like a badass, too. Yep. No, I need. To, I definitely need to look that one up. I think he ended up dying in the 60s. Okay. 63, I believe. Something like that. I gotta look him up. That, that was pretty funny. Mad Jack Churchill. Yep. We're gonna be going to another mad guy with my last one. Nice. Have you ever heard of the Revolutionary War general named Mad Anthony Wayne? Yes. He's a pretty interesting guy. Nice. Now, he had some feats in the Revolutionary War. He had some feats that he's probably better known for after the Revolutionary War. When they started, like, the First Indian Wars or whatever. But we're gonna be talking about one of his battles during the Revolutionary War with this one. Have you ever heard of the Battle of Stony Point? Yes. Okay, this is an interesting battle. Now, Stony Point was essentially a British-held fort during the Revolutionary War. It was along the Hudson River, which is a river that runs through New York City. Mm -hmm. This would have been about 30 miles north of New York City, however... And I guess they were trying to they were trying to get this fort just because it was like it was a good spot to hold, but it was also a tough spot to capture, and it was it would have given them better access to New York City, which I don't think they controlled back at that point. I don't know the Revolutionary War like the I don't know the battle map that well. I feel like I saw something about this when I visited West Point. Okay, and basically they were trying to get like basically a good position around the river because that was going to become a critical point, whether it was happening right then or not. It was going to be Sony Point was going to become a critical point moving forward mm-hmm. during the Revolutionary War. Now, this would have been in, in 1779. So this has been well after the Declaration of Independence. But people don't really realize that the Declaration of Independence was like at the beginning of the Revolutionary War. Yeah. There was a lot of, of fighting going yes. on after that. <laughs> so that's pretty interesting. Um, so basically what ended up happening was this fort was a very, it was, it was a tough, it was tough to move on. You really couldn't use normal tactics to move on it just because it was so elevated. And it wasn't really a fort as much as it was like a, just a really defensible, like, natural formation that you were able to build around quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So what General George Washington ended up deciding he wanted to do was he had to get creative with how he wanted to take this area. He really wanted to take it. Now, this was on the shore of the Hudson, and it was the kind of place where you can't really move in on it because they have such a good vantage point that every, you're going you're gonna to see troops moving in from miles away. So they had to come up with a creative idea to get there without just getting bombarded by cannon fire and everything else because if they see you, they can just unleash hell, and there's no way you're ever going to get there. Right. So, luckily for George Washington, he had this guy named Mad Anthony Wayne, one of his better generals back then, and he was like... Okay, Anthony, uh, we got to get creative with this. We're going to put together this group called the... It was like, okay, it was called like the, like the Light Infantry Group. They had a name, but I don't know what they called it. Anyways, the plan was to go <clears throat> to go in under the cover of Nightfall, which makes sense because you, you can't really advance during the daytime. Nightfall, you, if you do this right, you're not going to see these guys coming in. Mm-hmm. The biggest issue with this was George Washington made the order, and it was almost a necessity, bayonets only, no ammunition. So they went in on the cover of Nightfall with no bullets, just bayonets. Interesting. And General Man Anthony Wayne put together a group of soldiers in each brigade. They had about 1,350 ended up attacking in groups of like three or 400. Each group was led by a group of 20 that were at the head of the pack, and they were known respectively as the forlorn hope so they were like the first guys that were going to be going in mm-hmm. and he made special deals with these guys like if you did something you would get like bonuses and shit like that like prize money essentially for being a badass mm-hmm. and what ended up happening was um it got kind of messy pretty quickly because there weren't really a lot of like confirmed dead but a group of them like didn't judge the hudson river right and they had to like climb up this fucking cliff just to get in there basically Ugh. One group got spotted right away and got attacked. And they had a bunch of, like, diversionary battles going on. But um, 
the one group that didn't judge the Hudson River, like, like they lost, like, 50 guys, and they really didn't know what the hell happened. They probably all drowned because the tide came in or something. I don't know how a river works, but it was ridiculous because Man Anthony Wayne was given a lot of leeway as to how he wanted to do this type of shit. They ended up taking the fort pretty quickly because of his, just, like, his covert under That's the fall, so nightfall tactics. And they were, but they were only using bayonets. Could you imagine marching in against a heavily fortified defensive position where they have every gun under the sun, the best military, the best guns, the best cannons ever? You're marching in with just bayonets. I'm trying to come up with reasons. Like, are there strategic reasons not to go in there with guns? Were they trying to just not be loud? Or they that was part to, of it. That was probably the, the, the only secrecy reason was I... the key to this entire thing. It was not going to work if they didn't have the element, the complete element of surprise. Right. One mistimed gunshot, you could wake up the entire fort, and then that, it's over. Then that's it's over. the only thing I can really think over. of. Yeah. And it's like once you got up into the fort, it was a different story. But you had to be pretty far up in the advance to the point where their cannons couldn't pick you up. If you fucked up early, they could just blow you to bits. And every, you'd lose everybody. You'd right. lose most of that group. Sure. So the British ended up suffering re- relatively bad casualties, and the Americans ended up holding the fort pretty quickly thereafter. Badass. Now, they gave up the fort pretty quickly. They ended up abandoning it pretty quickly. Man. But it became a momentum shift for Hell yeah, the definitely. Revolutionary War. So I don't know if that was the best story, but Man Anthony Wayne, that's, oh, how, he, that's that how he got his one. Man Anthony Wayne story. Or yeah. his, his moniker. Sure. Or not a moniker, his title, his nickname. It was because this was a really daring mission. And what's funny about this one is he he, he fought in the battle. He got taken out of commission quickly. A musket ball hit him in the head and kind of knocked him out. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously it didn't kill him. So I thought that was kind of funny. But Yeah, hey, didn't kill him. Yeah, so that's all I really have with that one. That was really good. I like that one. Do you have any more uh, war stories today, sir? I have one more. Uh-oh. It's real quick. Tim might know about this guy. This guy is a, um, this guy's like a, uh, uh, secret agent, Polish secret agent. Okay, cool. This guy is Witold Pilecki. You ever hear of this guy? Maybe. I'm not sure. So this guy was a Polish, like, secret, like, special agent type dude. And this dude literally volunteered himself to enter Auschwitz to get captured and to infiltrate Auschwitz to, to show the allies how terrible Auschwitz was. Because a lot of people didn't think that it was that bad they didn't early really, on. They didn't really find out about a lot of this until towards the end and after the war, after the World War II, so... Yeah, and he ultimately went in there to also start up a resistance. Yes. And he was able to message allies and basically sound the alarm about the nature of Auschwitz and what they were doing there and everything else. Sure. And uh, he was in Auschwitz for about two and a half years, put up with all that shit. And he couldn't really get the resistance together. He couldn't really get it going. A yeah. lot of a lot of people didn't really want to do it, I don't think. Which should be no surprise considering the condition of yeah. Auschwitz. I know yes. if I'm there, I'm probably not <laughs> signing up for a resistance force if I haven't eaten in three months, you know what I mean? Right. But he ended up escaping, and he attempted to liberate them on the outside, but sure. he ended up getting captured in, in Warsaw, and then he was he was executed, unfortunately. Yeah. But that takes some balls, it was to, a... to, to get yourself captured, Yeah. then spend two and a half years in Auschwitz, and be everyone's, like, hope, like, trying like to... choosing choosing to do that. Like that's bravery. That is incredibly brave. Yeah. Well, that, that's all I got on that guy. All right. So that's all we have with nor- news or uh, war stories. Yep. That's all I got. All right, I got one more quick thing. This is not a war story. This is a dumb comment. It's gonna take about two seconds. Sure. This is completely unrelated to anything that we've talked about recently. But I look up a lot of sports stuff. I like I like sports. I like learning about sports and just reading different stories. Oh yeah. And I was curious about NBA rookies. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to see like who the youngest Amer or the oldest American NBA rookie is because you hear about some of these stories. Like I was talking about Dennis Rodman the one time. Dennis Rodman was a 25 year old when he joined the NBA, mm-hmm. which I thought was that's pretty old for it a rookie. It is old. Yeah. There is a player who's currently in the NBA G League, which is used for the D League, named Andre Ingram who is a 36-year-old, but he's still playing in the G League. He set the record in 2018. He became the oldest American rookie since at least the 60s, back when (laughs) professional basketball started playing. Yeah, He spent 11 years in the G League, making $19,000 a year to play in the G League. Finally, in 2018, as a 32-year-old, for the last two games of the year, the Lakers called him up, and he played (laughs) in the NBA. Good and for him. He played two games. His first game, he ended up scoring like 19 points or something. Yay. And he ended up getting a second 10-day contract with the Lakers back in 2019. He probably made more money in those 10 days. He, he made did. more money in the two <laughs> days that he played with the Lakers than he did his entire oh G League season. Unreal. He's been waiting for that moment his whole Could life. Could you imagine, though, you're a 32-year-old. 
trying to tell yourself you're good enough for the NBA. Finally, it happens at age 32. You're finally an NBA player. You can tell your kids, I'm an. I was an NBA player. He probably proved so many people wrong. He fought. He Kudos a, to this guy. He fucked around in the D League for 10 years, <laughs> making nineteen thousand dollars a year, all for the love of the game and for the belief in himself. <laughs> He's gonna, he's, he's gonna he's gonna tell his grandkids one day. He's got here here are his career highlights and awards. Two time D League three point contest champion, NBA G League Sportsmanship Award. <laughs> he won that twice. <laughs> he was he went to the school called American University and he was a ter- two time first team all Patriot League member. So that was back when he was in college. But So this guy was pretty successful in the in the D League. Talk about G League. Yeah, talk about just dedicating yourself to the craft. Yeah. Um, Good for him. I don't know. I thought that was great. I like this guy. Yeah. Anyways, on that note, that's all I have this week. Do you have anything more? Nope. I'd say that's about it. Yeah, we apologized last week. The last episode was kind of rough audio quality-wise. I was having some issues. We uh, When I played back the track, it sounded like we were talking like this, <laughs> and it sounded ridiculous, and I had to like tweak the the um the pitch and i didn't get it perfect but i'm not gonna lie it was kind of funny if i put it too high we were talking <laughs> these really it's like we it's like we snorted helium or something sure that's hilarious that was kind of funny like Should've i left it like that i thought about doing, <laughs> doing that but i was embarrassed i was embarrassed for both of us so this week should be a little bit better we're back in ben's studio so usually the quality is a little bit better when we record here it's just a smaller room. Smaller room, better computer. But uh, please tweet us at 30 and uh, please let us know what you guys think about the content. Listeners are still doing all right. We're still getting like, we got like 33 on episode 78. It's pretty so good. That's pretty good. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Keep um, listening. Yes. Tell your friends about it. Please keep listening. Please keep telling your friends, your family. Share the Facebook posts. Yep. Make your kids listen. I don't care. I know it's not really kid-friendly, but it's not, there's a lot worse things they could be exposed to. I mean, to. we might curse now and then, but... Yeah, but who doesn't? I mean, four-year-olds probably say that type of shit these days, so... We're not indoctrinating anybody. Definitely not. Anyways, we appreciate you guys listening. Hope you guys enjoy this episode, so... Peace! Honestly, I thought that was a good episode. Yeah, it was pretty, it was pretty good. So, do you have any more news? Yeah, but I'm going to try and make it as quick as possible. Sure. This is from June 3rd. Archaeological Bonanza. Ancient city emerges from the Tigris River. Drought reveals 3,400-year-old urban center of the Mitanni Empire. The kingdom of Mitanni, also known as the... You good? (coughs) Excuse me. (laughs) Sorry. Uh, I apologize. Kingdom of Mutami. Hold on, I'm gonna. A team of German and Kurdish archaeologists have uncovered a 34-year-old, 34-year-old. Cut. A team of German and Kurdish archaeologists, archaeologists. Cut. God damn it. You good, buddy? I'm good. I apologize. I think I fucked you up. I'm sorry. No, you're good. A team of German and Kurdish archaeologists have uncovered a 3,400-year-old Mitanni Empire-era city which located on the Tigris River. The settlement emerged from waters of the Mosul Reservoir earlier this year as water levels fell rapidly due to extreme drought in Iraq. The extensive city with a palace and several large buildings could be ancient Zakiku. Zakik Hiku. Zakiku. Zakiku. I feel like we're back in like the first episodes of the show. Zakiku. Z A K H I K U. H I K U? Zakiku. Right? Zakiku. Zakiku. That's why we go with Zakiku. Okay. The extensive city. With a palace and several large buildings, could it be ancient Zakiku. Ahead of it. Oh, uh, where okay. was this? Where was this battle fought? Near uh, Bethune. Where the hell's Bethune at? No idea. Man, we gotta get we gotta get these world maps up. <laughs> Anyways, but he killed the first approaching approaching Nazi Nazi show. Ka- <laughs> <laughs> See, when I don't smoke, I can't read. The first approaching <laughs> Nazi. <laughs> I'm sorry. God. So what else has been going on with you, buddy? Anything good? 
It's been going. It's been going good. You excited? Yeah. You excited? It's been going good. Yeah, I'm excited, but ultra shit, shit, shit with the wedding's been frustrating. Especially the ultra slim tuxedos. I'm gonna split my pants. I hope you realize this. You're not gonna split your pants. Yes, I am. I should have been in like a normal fit. They should have re- recognized that. They didn't recognize that. Trust me, it's like, gonna fit fine. I cannot sit down in those that I was wearing. Like well, it was like you, you realize they only have certain sizes to try on. They're sure. normally smaller. Sure. So I wouldn't uh, worry about it. I'm worried about and it. And if you need it altered, they can alter it. They better be able to. Anyway, so I wouldn't worry about it. I'm worried about it. See, we would have looked ridiculous if we had the other shit. The reason I picked this was for the material. You picked this? Yes. Well, we both did, Paige and I. We picked it for the material, right? It's like the material is stretchier. It's not as wooly. It'll be lighter. We're going to be outside in summer. Wooly? Like, you ever wear a suit and it's, like, real heavy? It's thick. It's like, I didn't want those kind of tuxedos. I wanted something lighter, more slim, and, like, it's not designed to be tight. It's going to look like I'm wearing yoga pants up there. You will not look like it. it will, That's what it's going to look it like. It will be, like, baggy. It better be. 